It really is great to see you, and as we head into the end of the year, we had a wonderful time yesterday with the, with the men. If, uh, for those that weren't there, please, if you could listen to that, I feel like it is a word for the men. It's not just a word for the men, actually, it's a word for everybody, but, but I really feel like a word for men in this season. And um, yeah, I just feel like God is on the subject of authority, and I'm interested to see what... Uh, what Corne brought out and said, if you've got weeds before you, God's given you hands, pull them out. And the reason why is because God's given you authority to act in the kingdom. So act. Don't abdicate your authority under, under God. And um, God's not going to pull the weeds out for you. He's given you authority to pull out the weeds. And it's, uh, I think there's, uh, there's something on that. Anyway, it really is cool to see you. There was something that I wanted to mention now. Oh, over 65s, the lunch. Listen, if you're 65 and a half, 64 and a half, you're still welcome. If you're 63, you're still welcome. We just had to put a kind of a cutoff date there. We couldn't let it go all the way down to 25. That would be defeating the object. But uh, if you're in the region of 60 plus, you're invited. Please put your name down. Please come. Uh, we'd love to host you, love to bless you, love to speak life over you and uh, enjoy a meal together on Tuesday. If you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to read a little bit from verse chapter 4. Oh, actually, this is, I'm in the wrong thing here. Actually, that's what I want. I want to read from chapter 4, verse 13, and then through to chapter 5, verse 11. But I want to talk about, I want to kind of get into 5, verse 11, 1 to 11. And I want to explain that the unexplainable that I managed to not explain well last week. So um, just to, for clarity's sake and to help you and to get you excited about what's on offer next year, actually. So this is what it says, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. What's wonderful about going through a book is you have to go through the stuff. If you don't go through a book, then you can pick and choose which text you're going to preach from, and then you don't preach the difficult ones, and you preach the nice ones. Whereas if you're going through a book, you kind of got to get there and say, well, what does that mean? And how is that understood? And kind of try to unpack things and try to look at what kind of is understood about these things. So um, I've never, never preached on eschatology and end times, kind of these sorts of things before, and um, certainly from a, from a, on, on a Sunday. So it's been interesting trying to keep it as simple as possible, but, but do justice to the text. Verse, chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who, fall as, who, who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's a big word, that have no hope. The rest of mankind, the rest of people. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring Jesus with those who have fallen asleep with him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, we who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, the voice of an archangel, 
and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. All that, after that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And the encouragement is this. It's whether you're dead or alive, you're going to be with him. You cannot be separated from Jesus. Neither death nor life can separate you from the love of Jesus. In fact, if you're dead, when he comes back, you're getting a front row seat to the coming of the king. You're getting a front row seat to the loud trumpet, to the angel archangel shouting. You're getting a front row seat to it. And in that moment, everything gets caught up and the Lord renews and begins to renew all things. Now we go to chapter five, verse one. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know that well. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While the people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as the labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not, long, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep. That's not dead asleep. This is spiritually asleep. Not awakened to the realm of the kingdom of God and Jesus. But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Like I said, nothing good. Kathy Whittle, nothing good happens after 12 o'clock. Do you hear that, Faith? Nothing good happens after 12 o'clock at night. Where's my daughter? But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He, did, he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, there it is again, whether you are dead or alive. Sleep is used three different ways here, to be dead, to be spiritually asleep, and then to be physically asleep. Three different words. We may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Amazing, yeah. So this section of scripture starts with the times and dates we do not, we do not, uh, you, you do not, uh, what's it say there, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write you for you, you know this well. Those words, times and dates, it's actually, if you, if you look at the, the, the Greek words there, they're chronos and kairos. So it's like the passage of time, like long periods of time, and then kairos, moments in time. So he's saying about the passage of time and then the moments of time. So the moment of time when Jesus returns and the passages of time in between, he says, you do not, I, do not need to know, I do not need to write to you about because I've already told you. It's incredible that this is a young church that he's recently visited and he's already given them good eschatology. 
He's given, he's given them a good understanding of what they're going, that's, that's coming, their hope. And uh, this, that, those, those times and dates, the exact same phrase is used in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and the dates. Exactly the same phrase. The Father is set by his own authority. But you now go into all the world and carry this good news as witnesses. Exactly the thing. Friends, can I just say categorically, you do not know the times and the dates. Don't try to figure it out. Jesus doesn't know. Only the Father knows. So about times and dates, you do not need to know because you don't know. So don't try to figure it out. What our job is, is not to try and figure out the times and dates. Our job is to get on with the mission of God. By the Spirit of God, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 8, he goes on to, they go on to be filled with the Spirit of God so that the boldness of God, so that the power of God might come on their lives so that they might be good witnesses of this good news. Times and dates. Not that important. Passages of time and moments of time. When it comes to these things of the end times, friends, don't get caught up in it. And when you come up with a guy that says he knows, he is a loony tune. Just so you know, straight up, most of them on God TV, people, channels, stuff. Don't listen to it. That stuff, it's loony tune. Officially, from me, loony tune. Don't go there. If Jesus doesn't know, that guy doesn't know. Okay, I think, I think I've made my point. <laughs> but what I want to do when it comes to times and dates, I want to clarify something of what the, 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 the different views are about the times and dates. And so what I've done is I've given you a picture so that we can understand them. And I want to just very briefly just run through them so that you have an understanding of how, how the church has viewed these things over the, over the millennia. And then make a few quick comments about them and then get back into this text because this text is full of hope. This text is full of life. And I'm actually so encouraged even just studying this text. So let's just go to, if you can put... Um, Re Revelation chapter 20 talks about a millennium. So it talks about a thousand year reign of Christ. It's this golden age. It's this golden time when Jesus reigns. And what happens is the church differs around what that looks like and when it's gonna take place, right through the centuries. And these are the different views. So I've, got, I've given you a nice picture there. And what I've done is I put them in age order, just so we can work through them systematically which is what I didn't do last week very well. So the first one in age order, the oldest, the oldest view is called the historical, is premillennialism or the historical premillennialist view. And uh, this was the view of the early church fathers right after Christ. In fact, many of them thought the next thousand years was gonna be it. Obviously it wasn't. And... Uh, Christ, and the reason why it's called pre-millennial, if you'll see there, you'll see second coming and you'll see millennium, it comes before the millennial, pre-millennial. It's actually quite easy when you think of the names. Pre-millennial comes before 
the millennium. So the premillennial view is that, and before that, there'll be a great tribulation, there'll be a hardship, there'll be all these sorts of things that are gonna be happening, and then Jesus will return, and there'll be a thousand year, a literal thousand year reign of Jesus, and after that, the judgment of Christ will come. Now, I'm just making it very simple. Do you see the crosses on the, on the left-hand side, and then do you see on the very right-hand side, those are all pretty much the same? All the views agree between the cro- at what happens before the cross and up to the cross, and all the views agree pretty much on the extreme right-hand side as well. It's just what happens in between. They're kind of a bit fuzzy on. So all Bible-believing people believe in the first coming of Jesus, and they believe that ultimately when Jesus returns, he will bring judgment, he will bring life, and he will bring a new heaven and a new earth. That's kind of the, the, bottom, the big idea. So the early church fathers... Um, also, in that time when that view was being formed, and this is quite key because I didn't kind of really understand this until I've started studying on this. They had a very negative view of, of the world. And so the emphasis was to wait on Jesus to make things new. So they, they couldn't see how anything could get better outside of Jesus returning and making things new. And so when you are living in a context and when you're living in a culture, you read the scriptures through a context. And so waiting for the second coming for Jesus to make it better was the historical premillennial view. The next one is, did I get that right? Yeah, actually I, Got the, sorry, the age is wrong. Number three is actually meant to be number two. Amillennialism is the second oldest view. In this one, that's the, that's the yellow version. This one, it's the present age of the church is actually the millennium. The present age of the church is actually the millennium. So that it's, not a, it's not a literal thousand years. It's a figurative thousand years. And we're in the millennium already. And rather than, this, it's a symbolic way of speaking about the present rule of Jesus. And this view was put together by Augustine. And in Augustine's day, they had a pretty neutral view of the world because of the age that they were living in. So it was kind of wasn't too bad, wasn't too good. And kind of they, they also, at the time, there was no kind of, they didn't think they needed a dramatic intervention. It was, and so they, he came up with this. And obviously, they're looking at scriptures. These are clever people. These are not heretics. These are clever people wanting to find God, Bible-believing, looking after God, wanting to know the best, wanting to get before God, studying the Bible in the presence of God. And so amillennialism was, was born. No dramatic intervention of the kingdom was expected, and he emphasized the present rule of Christ through his church. Amillennialism. The third oldest view is postmillennialism. This, was a, this is kind of a development within the amillennialism view. And you, you can see. So for post-millennium, you see it says the millennium. That's not literally a thousand years, but there is a period of time where the authority of the church gets imposed and, and the power of God through the authority of the church gets posed, imposed into the world to make the world a better place. And so the world becomes a better and better and better place till eventually it kind of becomes 
heading towards heaven on earth and then Jesus returns and makes all things new. That's the post-millennial kind of view. And um, it's a figurative thousand years and Christ also comes after the millennium. See, see pre-millennial, the first view. Second coming comes before the millennial. Both the, both the, both the amillennial and the post-millennial view, Christ comes after the millennium. So they're both post-millennial views, but they're kind of adaptions of one another. So in theology, this is how guys kind of figure this out and kind of were, again, everybody Bible-believing, trusting God, looking for God, trying to understand the Scriptures kind of people. In the post-millennial time, it was in the, in the era of Francis Bacon. It was in the era of the Enlightenment. And people were optimistic of the human view, of, of, of human society. They were optimistic. Science was coming and things were gonna get better and better. You cannot help your context influencing your view of the scriptures. All of us do it. You study the scriptures with great humility and in community with people from different parts of the world because they see things differently because they live in different contexts. Best way to do things. And a guy by the name of Joseph Mead, a 17th century Anglican biblical scholar, and he believed that Revelation promised a literal millennium before the second coming. And so, and, and so this kind of view emerged over time. 17th century. So it's kind of as time progressed, there's different... Essential to the post-millennial view is the idea that most of the prophecies about the beast and the antichrist, I'm not even gonna get into those things, were fulfilled at the fall of Jerusalem. So all those bad things happened already. So all you've got to look forward to is the church being filled with the authority of God, living its life out, and the world becoming a better place. That's the kind of classic view. Again, I'm... It's very simplistic, and I'm trying to just give you the basics. The last view on the, on the thing is number four, which is called pre-tribulational premillennialism. So again, you'll see premillennialism because the second coming comes before the millennium. This is, this is pre-tribulational or dispensational millennialism. This is the rapture view. So when you understand, when you talk about the rapture view, this is the rapture view. In fact, there's two raptures in this view, technically. It's the youngest one, it's the 1830s. It's a variant on the premillennialism and uh, as I've said, it's the rapture view. All dispensationalists are premillennialists. So they're premillennial meaning the second coming comes before the millennial. Before this present world can be changed into a just society, um, they believe that only this present world can only be changed into a just society by Jesus returning. Only, that's the only way that we can change the world into a better place is by Jesus returning. It's never gonna change by itself. In fact, it's just gonna get worse and worse and actually we, we need Jesus to return. And then this will followed by a millennium of the glory of God ruling and reigning for a thousand years. That's the idea. The church will be secretly raptured by Christ seven years before the millennium, which is this rapture, 
You'll see there there's that down and then up. Jesus doesn't come to earth, but he catches people up and then there's a rapture. So that's the rapture. There's a rapture. The church goes out before the tribulation, before the seven years of tribulation goes out and then the second coming of Jesus comes. So that's, and then the millennium starts. And those are the, those are the basic four views of times and dates as best as we know how. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know all the bits and pieces, but those are the, those are the ways that people have understood it over history. As simple as I could make it. The big picture about these things, friends, let me just put diagram chapter two up, please, if you wouldn't mind. So this is a great diagram, so it's time. Time on this side, so oldest to youngest. And then across the bottom is world denying and world affirming. So in the the pre-tribulation view, remember I said, nothing nothing will make the world better, only Jesus' return. So they're very world denying. They're very, actually nothing's gonna happen. It's about the power of Jesus coming back. And caught up with that, it's dispensational. So there's cessationism in that as well. It's a huge view of Israel and the church and the separation of Israel and the church with the rapture view. It's all in there. It all comes from there. And on the other side, there's post-millennium, which is huge world forming. The church can change the world. And we call to change the world. And we call to fight for social justice. And we call to be in the world. And God's given us authority to be in the world, to change the world, and to be, make the world a better place. It's kind of, that's the... That's the ambit between all of those views. Totally future view of the kingdom on one hand and then a totally present view of the kingdom on the other hand. The, 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 that's, and that, that lives between these two extremes. So, let me just give you some big picture things about this. Number one, a lesson in history is that all views have a particular genesis in a time within a particular social context. Understand that. Bible-believing people have got before God in the presence of God and, and studied the scriptures and come up with different theories and the way it works as best as they know how, but in a context. Number one. Number two, none of these theories are heretical. None of them are heretical. Number three, there are many committed Bible-believing Christians who will not agree with you in whichever view you are in. Many. Don't fight with them. It's not worth fighting about. Nobody knows. The problem with history is you weren't there. Evangelical Christians have always agreed to disagree on the issue of the millennium. It's part of life. Be careful not to be arrogant and dogmatic about your own preference. Be teachable. Be open to change. Can I just say, be biblical. Don't just absorb a view without knowing what the, how that view came about. So you can say, Yana, I believe in a rapture but then do you believe in everything that that scheme believes in? You think, I oh, know, I don't believe in that, don't believe in that, don't believe in that. Well, then maybe you don't believe in that either because it all comes as a system. These are all like systems in theology. 
And I don't know if God's meant to be systematized. I don't know if heaven's systematized like this. Who knows what it's gonna be like? One thing I do know is that we can sing, Lord, let your power come, let revival come, let the world be changed. God's given us authority to change the world and to minister to a dying world and to make the world a better place. Amen? Amen. Can I also say, along with the theology of authority and power, you also have to have a theology of suffering. You also have to have a theology of suffering because it's gonna be tough. So you can't be triumphalistic and think you're gonna live in utopia. But on the other hand, you can't be fatalistic and defeatist and suck lemons all our lives. We've got to be positive and moving forward into the things of God more and more and more. And trusting Him for more. What He's made available to us, we need to take hold of. That's what, we, that's, what we, that's what we've got to trust God for. Be open to learn and to change. I've said that. Be biblically informed. And then can I lastly say, be con- that's, and I've said this already, just be consistent. Make sure that you understand what these things mean. So don't go start fighting with people about I believe this and I believe that when you actually don't really understand what that means. Because most of the time, if I had to take a thing of, of the church, a uh, uh, the temperature of the church, most of us have been more informed by the La Haye Left Behind series and the movies about these things than what we have by the Bible. And we haven't even studied these things because they are complex. Ask me, I've been in it for like two or three weeks, actually longer, trying to understand the stuff. Simply put, as simpler as I could put it. That's what it looks like, the times and dates. More than that, we don't know. We've got to get on with the job. God's given us the power and authority to get on with the job. So let's move on to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. I've read this already, so I'm not going to read that again. Okay. The time is not ours to know. That was my first point. I've made it already. The second point is this. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. However it comes and whenever he comes, it is coming. And with that, if you know Jesus, it's a day of great hope. But according to this text, if you don't know Jesus, it's not so much hope. In fact, the Bible uses the word destruction or ruin in this text. There's a day of his return, and if you know Jesus, you will be with him. Nothing separates you from him. There is a great day of return. And this is the great Christian hope. Because no matter what we go through on this planet, Wars, pestilences, diseases, and death. And just when you think it can't get worse, you find out another place in the world where it is worse. God gives us the strength and the ability to get through it. Because our hope is not here, it's there. 
there will be a day when he returns and makes everything new. It's our great hope. Number three, this day will come like a thief in the night. This thief, this thief will bring destruction to those that don't know him. But this thief will bring great joy and delight to those that do know him. And when it talks about the thief here, depending on which view you're in there, if you're in the rapture theory view, when it talks about thief, they interpret that as silent. It's quick and it's silent. It's a secret rapture. Nobody knows. But I don't think that's what this talks about because when you look at all the other times when it uses that same thing, it talks about the suddenness of it. So when Jesus returns, he will return suddenly. He will return suddenly. Romans chapter three, verse three says this, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. You will not know, suddenly I will come. So there's, we don't know the times, but he will come. And when he comes, it'll be, it's like, it's like you're waiting, waiting, waiting. And then suddenly you're there when you least expect it. Jesus will be there. He comes suddenly. He comes like a woman in child labor. You see, the text compares it to labor pains. And I think the reason why he talks about labor pains there is because once you're pregnant, everybody's in expectation of the baby, but you don't know exactly when the baby's coming. So this is the kind of surprise that it is. This is the kind of suddenly that it is. It's like, as a believer, you're pregnant with this hope and expectation, but you don't really know when. You don't really know when, and, and you're kind of expectant, but... And then when that day comes, there's great joy and excitement for the new life that is coming. That's the expectation and hope that we have of the second coming of Jesus. When the baby comes, you don't decide when it comes. And once it starts coming, you can't stop it. It comes. You can't escape it. It's coming. This is the delight. This is the image that he uses here. So what's the best thing to do? Prepare. Prepare for the coming of the baby. So what do you do to prepare for the coming of the baby? You're packing a bag. You're getting your other kids sorted out. You're sorting out a room. You are, you, 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 you're praying for this baby. You're expectant for this new life. You, you're kind of anticipating it. You're excited. You're hopeful. This is how we to be with the second coming of Jesus. We don't know when, but when it comes, it comes, and we can't change it. But man, we can start to prepare for it. And this is what this text is on about. He talks about people of the night versus the people of the day, and he, he talks about the dark versus light people. He talks about people that are spiritually awake versus people that are awake to the things of God. And he says, you are not like those in the dark. So when the, when the thief comes, you'll be surprised, but you won't be overcome with destruction. You won't be ruined. You, you'll be surprised, but you'll be excited.
He says, you belong to the day, not to the light. You see, what do you do in anticipation of the day? How do you live in anticipation of the day? He says, you mustn't be like those that are spiritually asleep. That's a radical thing, friends. Have you, the thought that when Jesus returns, have you thought of this? When Jesus returns, for those that are not awake to him, it's too late. Maybe that's a neighbor. Maybe that's a family member. I tell you what, friends, the thought of this, the thought of the second coming of Jesus should drive us to, to evangelism, should drive us to mission, should drive us to, Lord Jesus, help us. Lord Jesus, we need to get people to know you. We need to awaken this world to the light of your kingdom. Matthew 24, verse 44 says this, so you must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. You must be ready. The whole point of this is you must be ready. Are you ready? How ready are you? When you know there is a day of the Lord, how do we get ready? When you're, a, when you're aware of the hope of the world and where it's heading to, how, you, how are you living your life? How are we living our lives? When you're aware that this big plan is in motion and however, whichever view you're in there, at the end of the day, there's that final one coming. When you know that that's coming, friends, if you put your faith in Jesus, that's what you put your faith in. There's a final coming. What, how are we living our lives? Are we giving our life to be part of that hope? Are we, are we living with his plan in mind? Are we, are we saying, Jesus, please, Lord God, You've given us authority to change the world. You've given us the kingdom. Let the kingdom come through my life. I'm on this planet for 70, 80, 90 years max. And then eternity with you. Is there something more important than living your life now in the light of that day? Is there anything more important than living our lives in the moment a light of that day? When you understand that there's a day coming when we will give an account for our lives. You'll give an account for our lives. It's so weighty. In Thessalonians, in chapter four, verse one and two, it says, live a life pleasing to the Lord. That's why he's saying it. Because one day we'll give an account. I'm saying, Lord, I wanna please you. When I stand before you on that day, well done, good and faithful servant, I want to hear at your mouth, Lord. Lord, please help me, Jesus. In my frailty, weakness, Lord, please help me live a life worthy of your name. Please, Jesus, let me live a life worthy of your name that everybody else would know that your name is worthy. Let me play my part in your plan. 
whatever that part is. He says these three things, be watchful, be sober, and be awake. Be awake, be awake spiritually. Be ready to meet Jesus on the day. On that day, maybe it'll be that day, maybe we'll be alive to meet him on that day. But maybe it'll be my day when I die and go and be with the Lord. Who knows, whichever comes first. Are we awake spiritually to the life of the kingdom of God, to his word, to his life in me? That we will give an account and all these things that I've just said. But he goes on and he says, be watchful. Which means be, be on your guard. He says, be watchful, be on your guard. When we're living in these days, waiting for Jesus to return, keep a watch, keep, be wise. Don't be unaware of the devil's schemes. Don't be unaware of what's going on around us. Be careful what you let into your heart. Be careful of the diet that you're having because it's gonna shape the life that you live in the light of that day. What are we letting in? What are we letting in on YouTube? What are we letting in through social media? What are we letting in through our friends? What are we letting into our hearts? What are we shaped, what's shaping our hearts? Be careful what you let in. Be watchful. Be careful what you give yourself to. Be careful what you give yourself to in the light of that day. Pleasing to the Father. Our priorities, this shapes our priorities, friends. The problem is we don't, because we don't talk about this much, we kind of, I don't, know, don't put legalism on me and it's about grace and it's about this. No, 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 it's not about legalism, it's about pleasing Him. It's about imaging Him, it's about representing Him, it's about... It's about my love for him. It's about his love for me. It's about his heart for me. My father is 80 next year. He had scoliosis. He had polio when he was younger. So he walks like this. I've got a 16-year-old kid, boy, young man. He thinks he's bigger and stronger than me. And he tries to push me around. He's not yet, but he will be. And the reason is, is because I've always been bigger than him and big in his eyes. But eventually, you love your dad. Even though he's bent over but we sang a song this morning it says it says this it says the father in the father's name the all of heaven sings the father's name see that father in heaven is your father and my father and my father's father and he's your dad. 
and all of heaven sings your name, his name. And we get to have him as dad. We get to have him as father. He's my father. He's your father. He's not your headmaster. He's not your rule keeper. He's not your gatekeeper. He's not just your forgiver. He's your father. He protects you. He looks after you. He will not let anything touch you. He, he filters everything for your good because he loves you. I live in the light of that day. I want to see my dad. So my priorities line up with my dad's priorities. Be watchful like a soldier. Then lastly, he says, be sober. Be clear-minded. Don't lose your mind, friends. He says, while you're waiting for this thing, don't lose your mind. Don't get into conspiracy theories. Don't get caught up in the culture wars. Switch it off. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It's the shaking kingdom of this world. The unshakable kingdom of my dad is what I take hold of. When my finances are shaking, my dad's aren't. My father's not. Be sober. Live in reality. Live in Christ's reality. He's saying this. When you're waiting for that day, be sober. Don't be like people of the night. What do people at the night do? They fast asleep. They drunk. And they're not watchful. They think everybody's their friend. Until they're not, then they're fighting with everybody. He says, no, 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 you'd be like this. You'd be sober, live in reality. Be calm and collected in spirit. Know who you are and whose you are. And you live your life from that place. Don't get drunk. Stop getting drunk. Stop trying to cope with life by using alcohol. Find life in the life of Jesus. Get the, let the Father's love come and let you deal with your stuff so you don't need alcohol to deal with your stuff. And you can harden the alcohol or harden whatever you're hiding because the Father's love is enough for you. The Father's love is complete for you. Find your rest and peace in Jesus. Be spiritually aware. Be sober. Stay in the Bible, friends. Be sober. Stay in the Bible. Stay in the church. It'll keep you sane most of the time. And he says, while, you, while you're being sober, he says, put, on, put, put faith and love on like a breastplate. And he, and he goes on, he says, and, and put, put the hope of salvation on like a helmet. He says, when you're sober, he says, protect your mind and protect your heart. The way you protect your heart is to live by faith and love. You live for the best of others and you put a resilient trust in God that never wavers. You trust God, his character, his nature, and his purposes for you. Faith. You put it on, it protects your vital organs. It will get you through to the end of the, to that day.
says, put your helmet of salvation on. It's the hope, hope of salvation. It's this confident expectation. But friends, have you ever just thought, thank you, Jesus, I'm saved. When you return, I'm not scared of the end of the world. In 1833, a story goes of a young boy that woke his mom saying, mom, 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 the stars are falling out of the sky. It's the end of the world. The mom woke up and said, what, what are you doing, my boy? She went outside and it was what seems like a, a meteor, meteor shower. And this was her reply. In, in actuality, it was like a meteor shower. But at the time, they didn't know that, 1800s. She said this to her boy. She said, my boy, we've just got to thank God that we're ready. He says, mom, it's the end of the world. Her response is, my boy, don't worry. In Christ, we are ready. My question to you, number one, are you ready? If you do not know Jesus, you aren't ready. Are you ready for that day? And then a question to those of us that are in Christ. What do your friends, family, and work colleagues think that you are living in expectation of? What do your friends, family, and work colleagues think that you are living in expectation of? And their interaction with you and their view of you and their moments with you, what do they think is your expectation and hope? Somehow, we've got to let them know it's Jesus and a great future with him. Amen. Amen. Bless you guys.